I have an opening question before we get into political discussions. What's your What's your stance on bubbly water? Do you have oh, a love favorite? It. Love it. I had a hunch you had strong opinions about <laughs> water. Well, for me, it depends on the mood, right? So, like, I would rather drink bubbly water instead of soda. I I can't do soda. So I don't like bubbly water that's not flavored. It needs to have some type of aftertaste to it. So, like, we'll drink. I think it's called Aha. And then there's another brand that, oh, what company is it? Because they have black cherry as one of the flavors. I'm going to say for me, hard, hard disagree. I love bubbly water. Hate flavored water. Hate it. Hate it. I do. I don't know why flavored water. I guess it's because to me it's flavor, but without sweetness, it feels like it's like missing something. Even citrus? I mean, you know, it's fine. Would you put actual lemon in it with that? Uh, yeah, so so I will I will do that occasionally, um, and like the one exception is uh, I do like a Topo Chico Lime Twist. Now, if I have a choice between original Topo Chico and Topo Chico Lime Twist, original Topo every day because I I really love like people sometimes don't like hard water. I love hard water. The more minerals in my water, like the better. So I love Topo Chico, and then is in what will shock both of you. Is it uh, taste or is it the fact that it's 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 that it gives me kidney stones. <laughs> it's 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 the t- I love I love that it's I love the like rocky like taste of it. Like Topo Chico okay. in particular has a like like they're just regular mineral water it has like a flavor, right? And it's like rocks, which is my <laughs> yeah. Um, aside from Topo, I mean I love I love Perrier, which will shock no one. Now I would say that is the downside that I do hate about bubbly water is like. If you don't have a container like that, uh. then like it gets flat in like seven seconds, and then it's just not consumable. Then it's just water, so, right? Yeah, and then it's, it's just, just water. water. You wasted all this money. It's contaminated, as the little girl said on yeah, sign. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the more I, I want my water to taste like I just sucked it off a rock. See, and I want mine to taste so clear and like it's like it just rained outside, and it just tastes like nothing, like yeah. just freshness. Is acid rain still a concern? When we were kids, acid rain was the climate conversation, I think, of our generation. But I haven't heard anything about acid rain in 20 years. Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. Uh, My name is Andy Moore. Thanks for joining us today uh, on this. Honestly, this is the most beautiful Friday afternoon we've had in at least six months, I think. Um, joining me today are uh, our two co-hosts, uh, Bailey Perkins Wright. Hello, ma'am. Hello, Andy. Also, Scott Melson. Hey, what's up? You know, uh, I agree that this, it is lovely. I The temperatures are about 25 degrees cooler than they were last Friday, and I am in a better mood because of that and that alone. Let's start with where we ended last week, uh, which was about polling. So Amber Integrated, which is a local polling and political strategy firm and you're consulting and whatnot several former uh mary fallon staffers governor fallon staffers or mm-hmm. there's a lot of there was a, a merging of a couple of groups anyway um so there's some results and we will link to their um to their polling results in the show notes on this episode if listeners are interested in uh and looking they you know they pulled the usual stuff right approval ratings of the governor of Langford of Inhofe, all of those, those are all, um, for the most part, pretty positive. 
Um, and then, uh, you know, Biden is pretty negative, as you might expect in Oklahoma. Mostly, most Oklahomans disapprove of his drop of approval rating. Um, a surprising number of folks disapprove of. And I especially, of- be- I, I'm willing to bet that um, the recent vaccination protocols with businesses is probably contributing even to that lower rating. Yeah, and so, well, and so this poll was conducted September 29th to October 3rd, which I think might've been before that, so I'm sure it's not gotten any higher. So a couple of interesting things um, that I, I think, these are in the top lines. You can certainly read the cross tabs too if you're interested in seeing, you know, the, the deeply partisan divide and all of these things. But um, a key question that is asked in almost every big poll, right, is, are things going in the right direction or have they been, they gotten off on the wrong track, right? This is a standard question in national polling and certainly statewide polling. And in Oklahoma, 49% said it's on the right track, 46 said wrong track. That's strikingly high. That is incredibly high. And that is, that is those are not the kind of numbers that you want to see. Um, that's not the kind of numbers that you want to see if you are an incumbent governor or really anybody, <laughs> an incumbent yeah. anybody who's about to run for re-election. And, you know, people might look at this and say, well, what, what are you talking about? Like it says more people said right track than wrong track. Isn't that what matters? No, um, I would submit to you that what matters is that people who say it's on the right track are less than 50%, right? Less than half of Oklahomans that were polled uh, are willing to say that the Oklahoma's on right track. And when you look at when you look at uh, the wrong track number, which is 46%, and then you take that into don't know, 46 plus 5 is 51, right? right. So that, that gives you 51% of Oklahomans that either say the state is on the wrong track or that they don't know. Um, that's, a, that's a big deal. And that these are both within the margin of error, right? Like that, they're, that, right. that 40, 49 to 46 is within the, is within the margin of error. So um, I think another thing that's important is, you know, if you look at the last time that Amber Integrated um, asked this question, I want to say this is like a 13 point change, right? Yeah, it's a big change. Um, it's a huge drop um, in people saying that the state is on the right track from where it was last time they asked this question and they do it every quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, so big, big change from the second quarter to the, the third quarter. Yeah. And it's also important to note that, you know, 46% of the electorate are not Democrats. It's not like this is only on party lines by the nature of the numbers. It had to be a lot of Republicans saying, no, wrong track. Now, it doesn't go into details about why, and we can discuss that. But that, that question as a benchmark question, as Scott just said, that's a big change and not the kind of thing that if you're the incumbent governor running for re-election, you want to see. I wanted to look before we move forward on that, like, and, and we can get into more detail um, after uh, you go through and, and summarize the, the poll. Um, but it also doesn't shock me with, how much um, factions have had a presence in the Republican Party for the result to be what it is for uh, essentially the the governor's approval rating, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because you have folks who are on the far right who are not happy, and then you probably have people who are you know, consider themselves centrists or, you know, those moderate Republicans who also aren't happy with the direction. And so um, it doesn't surprise me, to your point, that with the makeup of Oklahoma's um, voter population, but even just conservativeness, that, that that number is what it is. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And I don't think we're going to get into this today, but I'll just mention for our listeners that earlier this week, the Oklahoma Tea Party, uh, their founder, Al Gerhardt, wrote a long blog about like detailing his relationship with Oklahoma Republican Party Chairman John Bennett. It was. Did you read it all, Scott? I know I said it was I, long. I, I I got about half I got about halfway through and then I had to go do something else and I was just like this is absolutely bonkers. So it's like a ten year diary, basically. Bailey, have you seen this blog post? I'm gonna send it to you. I'll I I'll even not. I'll link to it because it's wild. Um, yeah. And so it's really like the Tea Party's relationship with Chairman Bennett and uh, over the last decade and basically how the Tea Party put him where he was, how they got him elected as chairman, and how now they are suing him to get him out of the party. Because <laughs> and it's just, I mean, it is is—it is very... Life ca- comes at you fast. Yeah. <laughs> it is very casually written, um, but it is... That's uh, one way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's Gerhardt on his blog, like, just pulling no punches. Um, but it... I think it definitely illustrates the uh, the fissures in the Republican Party. It was it was wild. It, I was like, I can't believe this was like it was like when you watched the Lion King or the Lion King, the Tiger King, yeah. and uh, maybe Lion King. I don't know. Speaking of Tiger King, just as a side note, apparently on Twitter we learned that Carol Baskins. Gave a thousand dollars to Tom Cole's campaign. So wait, what? Well, I didn't see that. I guess that. Tiger King is finding its way into Oklahoma <laughs> politics. Carol Baskins. Carol Baskins. Carol Baskins. Yeah. That's hilarious. All right. Well, we should get. I think we now we have a side note to a, <laughs> a side, side note. note, to a side note yeah. Let's get back to the poll. I, another thing that I found interesting was that on the list of issues, they ask Oklahomans which do you think should be the top priority that the legislature should address. First, of course, was jobs in the economy. Second, believe it or not, COVID-19. Now, what? I remember a, a certain someone who works We're for the no governor the pandemic. saying that nobody cared about the pandemic. And I was like, but the, but the poll says that people do. 20%, that's the second highest one. A higher than education and immigration even, right? Like... Which is wild. But those, I mean, those four were like high, far and above the it, rest. It, it is interesting because... You know, it makes you, it does make you wonder, um, is the governor, you know, the governor spent a lot of time talking about immigration lately. He spent a lot of time going to the border, uh, doing some photo ops at the border that we're paying for, which is fine. Um, We, uh, he's spent a lot of time hammering the McGirt decision. Um, You know, McGirt doesn't show up anywhere on the list. Um, He doesn't show show up anywhere on the list. You, You might, I mean, maybe you could lump it under law and order, but law and order comes in, uh, like, like uh, towards the bottom of the list here at 5%. Um, so the things where the governor has spent the most of his time, now I think I think Governor Stitt, if we asked him, would say he spends most of his time on jobs in the economy. Um, I don't know that there's a lot of evidence to that effect, but I feel confident that's what he would say. Um, um, it makes you wonder, is he, is he pulling just like the Republican primary electorate? Um, in his preparation for his inevitable run for Senate or the presidency, and that's where he's, to, like that's where that's where he's choosing to spend his time. Is he like listening to his advisors? What are they using to guide? Particularly, what are they using to guide their decision making on messaging around the pandemic? Because um, as we'll talk about here in a second, um, we heard publicly from the governor 
really some of his first remarks um, on the pandemic this week um, in a video that he, he released on, uh, on the Twitter having to do with uh, the federal vaccine mandate. Um, and that's the first time we've heard the governor talk about COVID of his own volition in, in months. Um, and according to this poll, <laughs> at least it's, this, it's the thing that is uh, near the top of, of most people's minds. Um, you know, we'll see. I think, I think the last thing before we move on, um, you know, when, you, when we look at uh, the governor's approval rating uh, here in the poll, um, this is overall, do you approve or disapprove of the way that Kevin Stitt is handling his job as governor of Oklahoma? Strongly approve or somewhat approve, coming at 28 to 22 percent. Um, that's right at 50. Um, yeah. you, know, you know, most of the time, I think if you're an incumbent, um, you want to be at 50% or higher. So he's there. He's at 50%. The last time they asked this question, he was at 59%. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, that's a nine point drop, um, over the course of a quarter, which is significant. Now I'm not saying it's going to drop another nine points. Right. Um, but I, I think, I think the conventional wisdom is that the governor, being that he's a Republican, given the electorate in Oklahoma, um, um, you know, he's in a, he's in a pretty strong position as he heads toward reelection and, or running for reelection. And I think there's no doubt that that's true, that he is definitely in a strong position. I don't think it is as strong a position as it was a few months ago. Sure. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, Bailey earlier, I misspoke, um, so the, there's a question in the poll about the vaccine regulations for businesses with more than 100 people. And in that question, 43% of Oklahomans were in favor of, of the vaccine mandates for businesses and 54% opposed. So again, that's a lot closer than I think you would assume, right? That I think people would guess where it's like, oh, well, almost. That is true, especially with the makeup of our state. And yeah. again, 40, well, and, 43% and we're now are seeing not, a whole lot. I'll say 43% of voters are not registered as Democrats in Oklahoma, right? So they clearly, it's not just a partisan issue. No, that's true. And it's interesting because Scott lifted this, but I think there is this pivot to try to find an angle to focus on during the pandemic, right? And so there's this effort because we're seeing a lot of um, top leaders speak out, write press releases and other things about um, having um, private business owners and corporations disregard the president's mandate, right? That um, Oklahoma is going to stand against forcing vaccines against people but it's interesting because when you, like you said, when you look at this polling data, there's still a significant portion of the population that's like, oh, I, I don't see the big deal, right? Like it, it's, I, I think it's okay. So it is, it is, I think, important to note that when you, when you look at the polling data on the questions, on the questions of vaccine mandates, um, <clears throat> when they say, do you favor or oppose um, the U.S. Department of Labor's new regulation calling for businesses with 100 or more workers to require that all get vaccinated against COVID-19 and retested weekly, 54% oppose that. So a majority of people oppose that. Um, a majority of people oppose government-imposed mask mandates, but strong majorities of 81 and 73% respectively support that local businesses should be able to impose mask requirements in their own establishments, and strong majorities support that um, they, they would continue to shop at businesses that impose mask requirements. There does seem to be strong support for, you know, 
if uh, if we had the the let's pod this studio and we said that master required in the let's pod this studio um that 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 we can do that and people would support that mm-hmm. um but but oklahomans do seem a lot more divided on whether or not the government should be able to impose uh, uh impose mask mandates or vaccine mandates but speaking of president biden hasn't uh uh has uh, announced last month that uh, he was directing OSHA um, to to uh, come up with a set of rules or a rule that essentially will direct businesses that employ 100 or more people um, to require vaccines for all of their employees. Um, <clears throat> this is like, so it's an executive order directing an agency to like uh, promulgate a rule. So it's not like a law. So it wasn't passed by like the Congress, but once it's finalized, it has the force of law, is my understanding. It hasn't been finalized yet, but Oklahoma Attorney General John O'Connor has uh, released a statement yesterday saying uh, that he is calling on Oklahoma employers to disregard the Biden administration's upcoming vaccine mandate uh, and testing requirement. He says uh, that should the federal emergency rule be issued, which is in process right now, he and the attorneys general from other states would seek an injunction against its implementation. Um, OU law professor uh, Joseph Tai says that he does not think a lawsuit to that effect will be successful because uh, there is case law going back, um, you know, a hundred years or more that it says that the power of the government, um, that, that the, the the government does have the power to mandate uh, vaccines for public health. Um, Oklahoma Attorney General, who was deemed unqualified for a federal judgeship by the American Bar Association, disagrees with that assessment. Um, so that's a good uh, dig. You just <laughs> tucked in there. Yeah. I just, I'm just saying, you know, law professor, person who the Bar Association said wasn't qualified to be a judge. Um, those are the, those are the positions here, and I'm sure. But this won't be the first time that the administration has seen. A loss in the courts. Uh, no, it might. If they win, it might be the first time they see a victory. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> it's a dig. Just dig the. Just put the knife in there a little bit deeper. If I could uh, reach my computer, I'd do a, a little <laughs> rim shot a little sound rim shot. effect. Yeah. Um, KGOU has the story. Uh, uh, the attorney general um, made this announcement yesterday. Governor Stitt. Governor Stitt uh, put a video on Twitter yesterday uh, saying that, you know, the, 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 the hundreds of the hundreds or thousands of Oklahoma uh, employees who don't want to get vaccinated but could lose their job. They're not just statistics. I would like to ask the governor if all the people that are in the hospital unvaccinated against COVID or all the people that have died from COVID, if they're statistics. But um, you couldn't ask that since it was a, a Twitter video. So we'll see. We'll see where this goes. There are going to be a lot of challenges to this, but but we'll we'll see what happens. Uh, the rule has not been finalized yet, so we look for that in the future. So what I feel is most frustrating about this, Scott, is that it takes us away from the science and then moves us into this faux constitutional discussion. Um, there's a lot of, uh, around this time as well, I, I think this was last week, because my weeks are running together. So within the past week or two, um, Southwest Airlines imposed a vaccine mandate for their pilots. And there's been a massive demonstration of the pilots pushing back against that mandate. 
to the point where um, there were hundreds of flights canceled across the country. I had some friends who had to get in rental cars and drive because their connecting flights were canceled or they had to wait, you know, another day or two in the cities they were in um, because there wasn't enough people to fly planes to get them home. And so it caused a huge disruption in the airline industry. And so when you looked at the the comments, because the uh, president of Southwest Airlines made this short statement, um, there was a lot of the use of, um, you also need to look out for your workers because your workers are the ones that need to be taken care of. There was a lot of, this is an infringement on our civil liberties. Um, you can't do this. This is tyranny, et cetera, et cetera. And so I feel like this almost serves as a scapegoat to now shift the conversation away from public health and now gives leeway into conservative talking points about personal responsibility and freedoms and um, violating people's um, freedoms and choice to, you know, to choose the things that they want and we shouldn't have people imposing on X, Y, Z. And so um, I don't know that the mandate would be helpful in the narrative of people who already see any types of, you know, requirements as like, you're shoving something down my throat, right? Um, but also, I mean, on the other side of it, I'm I'm always on the side of employers who choose uh, to trust the science and follow public health to protect their clients, to protect their staff, right? Um, but I don't see um, the good that comes from even the president's approval ratings from this, but also um, no productivity from the dialogue related to who's going to get the vaccine and who isn't. Because I don't think the mandate is going to force more people to get it. It's just going to have more people exiting certain parts of the workforce and then propelling those who want to then hire a lot of unvaccinated people, right? And so I, I just wonder what's going to happen regardless of what the courts decide um, as we go it, forward. So, And also most people are vaccinated. Let's just point it out, right? Like in Oklahoma even, which is a low vaccination state, more than 70% of people have received at least yeah. one dose. And so it's not like like they are, they are very clearly catering to the, not the skeptical, but the resistant at this point. For sure. And I do, I would actually push back a little bit on that, Bailey, because I do see your point. But I also think, though, that there is, there is some pretty compelling data that shows two things. One, um, when employers impose, max, impose vaccine mandates, those work, right? Like I even talked, I even talked to a nurse that I know. She's a, she's a dear friend. She hadn't gotten vaccinated yet. She got vaccinated and she called me because she was worried because she had a fever. Um, and I was, and I kind of talked to her about, you know, what was going on, why she had the fever. And I was like, so this was your, this was, this was your first shot. And she was like, I know I should have gotten it sooner. And I was like, yes, yes, you should have. And, but you know what she said? She said, I just didn't want to. And I was like, 
okay, what changed your mind? And she said, because they told me that if I didn't get vaccinated, I was going to have to start wearing an N95 covered with a cl- covered with a surgical mask 12 hours every day for my shift and, <laughs> 12, and, and then get tested twice a week. And she's like, I did that for one day and about like to kill me. I was like, I'm going to get the shot. And so there is evidence that the that, that vaccine mandates by employers do push employees yeah. to get the vaccine because most people don't want to quit their job. And I think that the federal vaccine And I'm not mandate, in disagreement with that. Yeah, the, the, I'm, I'm not in disagreement with that. I, I'm saying, is the timing right for then the federal government to say, businesses, you now have to require this mandate? Does that make sense? Like, especially if, if there's a lot of folks already vaccinated. It just now shifts the conversation away from right. employers I see what you're doing saying. it to now the federal government is now being big brother. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so I see. Just... I see your point. So you're saying you're saying that the that the feds doing it gives ammunition to the conservative talking points when businesses were doing it anyway. Um, I, is that right? Yeah. Now that, and and there were conservative organizations, like the governor was promoting vaccines, right? He was promoting business. He like the, like the the um, health communities and others were saying businesses have the right to mandate that they can make those decisions for their companies, right? So those talking points were already there. Now that the federal government's doing it, now all of a sudden it's businesses you can disregard when just a couple of months ago, we were encouraging businesses to make those decisions for their employee, right? So it's just muddling the, the talking points. I just wish this mandate would have happened sooner before we had such a rush of people, because then that would have even given more cover for the businesses to say, like, now look, look at all of our employees are going to go get it. Like we are 80% of our employees are vaccinated or 90% or whatever. Right. But or like, like everybody's near. Absolutely. So I, I just wonder, was it trying to make sure that they understood all of the pieces that were necessary to make sure that this stuck in a court setting? Is that why it took so long to issue a mandate? But um, I mean, for the record, I am so for, sometimes making people do what they're supposed to do, right? Either go get the shot or you need to get tested as frequently as, you know, whatever the science says, people need to get tested, so. Yep. Well, and it's tough to, I mean, honestly, how many of us, uh, people we know that are uh, progressive would have been hesitant to get the vaccine and been mad if, if President Trump had mandated businesses do it. If the same mandate had come from the previous president, it'd be a different conversation, and that is a shame. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, just because it's that's true. Not what the science says, but as we kind of keeping us moving here, uh, you guys ever go canoeing? <laughs> you guys ever like to go? I have not ca- canoeing. Kayaking? I've never been. No. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the governor likes to go canoeing. I think, uh, or at least gotta have a hunch. You're not talking about boats. What? No. So, uh, frontier, the frontier, one of. Uh, one of the uh, uh, great, great local uh, journalist journalism organizations that we have, journalistic outlets, there we go, that we have uh, here in the state, has a story this week on the canoe deal, C-A-N-O-O. This is not the boat. This is the, electric I'm going to say vehicle. electric car company. Electric vehicle company. Uh, electric vehicle company. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, there's been a lot of reporting around this, and I think this is a, this is a good opportunity in the story to point out that um, 
you know, we've, we've said this before. We here on the show, we are not journalists. We do not do, uh, we're not reporters. We don't do our original reporting. We try to scour the news for tasty tidbits um, that are interesting uh, and that we think are worth your time to read. We always link those in the show notes. So um, I think it's important that we say we are not trying to lay claim to any uh, of, of the work that's been done. We're just trying to show you where you can see the fruits of... Uh, no one thinks of, you wrote it, Scott. Okay. Well, I just, I get, I get self-conscious about that because, um, you know, we, we pull a lot of articles here and we quote and we read, and I think it's just important to give credit where credit is due. So so this is, uh, this is from uh, Brianna Bailey at Frontier. Reviewing the deal, uh, a deal that is reportedly worth up to like $300 million um, for electric vehicle company, Canoe, uh, to locate a plant at Mid-America, the Mid-America Industrial Park in Pryor here in Oklahoma. There's been a lot of questions about exactly what these incentives are. A lot of them we don't know about because uh, they're confidential, but... Um, Frontier was able to get their hands on uh, on on some of these documents. The the lead on the story is interesting because the governor <coughs> went to a Texas Motor Speedway uh, north of Fort Worth in June and was on a stage at an event with canoe investors where he signed an agreement um, that kind of that, that the impression was it kind of locked this in that this deal was going to happen. Um, however, uh, Charlie Charlie Hanema, who is uh, the communications chief for the governor's office said that the paper that the governor signed uh, was not legally binding. The state never received a copy of this actual agreement. Um, and the, the quote is that that was more for show than substance. It could have been a blank sheet of paper for all we know. It's like when you get the, the big check at a donation thing, but it's not actually, a, you can't take that, that check to the bank to deposit it, right? Yeah. But that has, I think, only added to the questions about like, what exactly is this deal? What is Canoe saying that they're going to bring? And what is the state of Oklahoma promising to give them an incentive to try and, and bring the company here? Um, what, what the folks at the frontier unearthed um, is that the initial offer appears to include um, 400 acres of land that's valued at like $16 million, site development um, you know, in terms of infrastructure that's worth several million dollars more, as well as a $15 million cash incentive. So that's at least... That's at least $31 million um, in terms of incentives that, that are in play right now, along with uh, tens or hundreds of millions of more that we don't know about. Um, guys, what are, your th- what are your thoughts on this whole, this whole deal with Canoe? Well, just in general, I mean, we have the incentive evaluation committee entity that's supposed to be evaluating as we're giving away all these tax credits and incentives and tax breaks, what good is it bringing, but what's the ROI? And we still don't have clear information of exactly what the benefit is from us continuing this model of just giving away free money to attract businesses, right? Um, So in, in, in general, I just it does make me um, a little leery. Yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm also leery. So, Canoe should be noted has not actually produced any vehicles yet. Um, they have hired hundreds of people um, and are apparently nearing a 
a selection of a date that they will begin production, but they have not yet produced any vehicles. Um, so, you know, they announced in June this, this factory in Oklahoma. Um, but there's been some reporting this week, I think on TechCrunch, which is one of, a pretty good tech blog that I read uh, almost daily. They... Um, about that they've got a lot of uh, a lot of headaches because of the chip shortage and other like semiconductor shortages that are happening in the supply chain and there was an interview with the CEO of Canoe where he all but said you know we're a software company not a vehicle company right which is so Steve Jobs at, at Apple right he f would always reiterate they were a software company not a hardware company never mind that you know Two out of three people in America have an iPhone. Like I've got a Mac. Scott's sitting in front of an iPad. Like it's, we clearly have purchased Apple hardware, but what they were selling in in Steve Jobs's mind was was software. And for Canoe to say that before they produced anything is interesting. And they got the software, and I think they're trying to sell their software to other vehicle manufacturers, which could now I will say that could potentially be a higher revenue, like a higher growth strategy. However, if they're going to pursue that strategy, they don't need a factory to build cars and prior. So, I don't know. I, you know, and it also depends <clears throat> on their negotiation with the state, right? Because if even if they do make those higher revenues, is that going to seep back down into Oklahoma, or did the way that we formed these tax credits prevent us from even getting what we deserve from that revenue production, right? So, and I mean, I, I'm a believer that like government is, is there for making sure the infrastructure is right for businesses to come in, not necessarily just throwing money around <laughs> for, I mean, to your point, Andy, like if you're a software company, do you need this? Like, is this going to benefit Oklahoma 10, 20, 30 years from now, especially because those, those tax credits and incentives are written in ways that are, are long standing and long term. So. Right. I mean, I think my thing with this is that there's just so much about it that we don't know, right? What is Canoe's business model, right? Is their business model successful and sustainable? You know, are they are they are they are they more of like a startup, which is what it seems like they are, or are they an established company, right? Um, you know, there's a quote in the article where they talk about you know Tesla was a startup once. Yeah, Tesla was a startup once um, by a guy who'd already made several billion dollars as one of the founders of Paycom, right? Like it's like a guy who had won a track record of success. Um, um, but, you know, if, if and I'm not saying that we can't offer incentives to startup, but to startups, but $300 million of incentives to startups. Um, I'm actually, you know, I'm a fan of public private partnerships. I think that they can actually be really effective uses of taxpayer dollars. Sure. One of the things that the government does best, um, and I think that actually this is something that conservatives and liberals should be able to agree on. One of the things that the government does best is give people money, right? Um, so if the government can give money to a company that that company can use in a way where the multiplier effect is going to be significant, um, and and you know every dollar that's spent by the the government and giving it to that company um, has a multiplier effect of you know two, three, four, five times in the economy, I'm all for it. Um, I think you can have tremendous success. But the key that way. is being able to prove that, right? Right? Can right. can you prove that your business model is going to leverage that type of resourcing coming back to the state? And we don't even get to that point oftentimes. 
We just say, yeah, it sounds good. Well, and we may we may not be able to know mm-hmm. with this for years, right? right? And so it's a tough deal of like, are we, I, you know, I guess the question is, are we as taxpayers willing to put our trust in the the governor and in this company without we don't have the opportunity to do our due diligence, right? right. So right, and it, and the thing I think for me is if this was, you know, I mean, like just you know, cards on the table. Like if this was Tesla, sure, do it, right? Um, but we tried, and Tesla's going to Austin, right? And that you know, I mean. Whatever. There's a lot you can say about Tesla that. Tesla met but, with us out of courtesy. <laughs> you know, right. They, <laughs> and he, Elon Musk actually says that. He was like, I met with you out of respect, but I can't, I can't get my people to leave the valley and move to Oklahoma. Uh, they'll go to Austin. Um, right. You know, that's whatever. Um, um, but but for, for Canoe, I mean, yeah. If, it was, if we were talking two, three, four, five million dollars, I think I'd be a lot more like, all right, that seems like that's a risk that we can probably afford... That's a risk we can probably afford to take. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things they make a point to say is that all these agreements will have, you know, uh, protections and clawback provisions. But, you know, if the company doesn't make any money, right, then how are the how do you how do you claw back three hundred million dollars from people that don't have it, yeah. right? You you can't. Um, so I think with Canoe, I guess I end up thinking that we are in a place where we have, I have more questions than I feel like there are answers. Uh, so we will see. What happens? A um, couple other small things. Uh, Governor Stitt named a new general counsel today. Yeah. Uh, Trevor Pemberton, who was previously named as a judge to the uh, State Court of Criminal Appeals by Governor Stitt. Um, so, so he gave up a judgeship yeah. to, 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 to be the general counsel. To, I mean, I don't know the salary or the responsibilities. <clears throat> I'm, I would still love to be a special judge. I'll say it again. I know yeah. that I'm eligible because I'm a person. Um, uh, but that, and from some attorneys I've spoken to, they're pretty flabbergasted by yeah. this. Like why you would give up a judge on the, a judgeship on the court of criminal well, appeals. Well, I mean, to... people who have political aspirations, I mean, you can't be, you have to be nonpartisan and you have to remain unseen in many judgeships, right? right? Like you gotta well, and... be a neutral voice. So, I mean, if there's any aspirations to leverage your voice, run for office, have political influence. You can't do that in a judgeship. So that I that would be my guess of why that move was made. Yeah. Well, and that's exactly right. I mean, I think there's some speculation that he may have um be interested in being named to the state Supreme Court. Right? I mean, me too, bro. Well, right, yeah, wouldn't we all? <laughs> so, you know, there's there's always rumors that um Justice Noma Gurich is planning to retire in the next year or two, potentially before Stitt leaves office, which would then give him yet another appointment on the highest court in the land, uh, in our land. Um, and, and so that's, well, that's bananas on, on several fronts. But um, so maybe if this guy decided to do this as a favor and hopes that he could get appointed to the state Supreme Court next year. Who knows? But again, I, mean, I think this is honestly, if I'm being totally honest and I don't know how to do anything else, but I think this is evidence of uh, the partisanization of the judiciary. Yeah. Not that it hasn't been partisan in the past, but I think in the last few years we've seen a 
quick shift in that direction that's been more pronounced than has been in in the recent memory. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. I agree. And I mean, especially, I mean, from the federal level on down, I mean, we especially saw it when President Barack Obama nominated um, Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland for the Supreme Court. And there was all kinds of efforts to block that. And then the administrations flip and someone's quickly pushed through the process, right? Not necessarily on merits, because I mean, when you look at Merrick Garland's qualifications, he was- They're impeccable. All qualified to to serve on the Supreme Court. And so we have seen this um, overt politicization um, of who's getting appointments to the courts. And and there was an article and I have to figure out where I saw it that was talking about the future of our Supreme Courts, especially with the makeups changing, Um, especially um, the U.S. Supreme Court, because different decisions will, will take place because the compositions have shifted, right? They've, they've skewed more to the right. So what does that mean for the next 10, 20 years? And if openings happen at the state level, what will that mean for our courts for the next 10, 20 years? Because there are still folks who were appointed by our last Democratic governor who serve on that court. So once those folks retire, what does that mean? Yeah, that's true. I would say more about this, but I've already had two strokes this week talking about the Supreme Court. So... Oh, <laughs> uh, we are we are quickly running out of time. But uh, our last story, it is October the 15th. People already have their Christmas decorations out. You can go to Target and they're out. You can go to Lowe's uh, and, and see the Christmas trees. You know who else has their Christmas decorations out? It is the city of Enid, who now has the world's tallest fresh cut Christmas tree at 140 feet. Uh, they put it up on Thursday. I heard that there's going to be people from all over the country coming in to see that Christmas tree. You know what? Uh, you know, um, I, I, you know, may, maybe so. Um, should we was, do the podcast from the Christmas tree? We, we absolutely should. Uh, the tree was brought from uh, Northern California on a trailer. Uh, they put it up on Thursday. Uh, the tree will be decorated with 18,000 lights, 10,000 ornaments. Um, uh, the, the, the mayor of Enid would like to note that the tree had already been marked for harvest. So this was not a tree, uh, that was cut specifically for the city of Enid. It was going to be cut anyway. Um, after the holidays are over, uh, they will, uh, cut the wood and it will will be donated to Habitat for Humanity. If you are, if you are interested in, uh, seeing the lighting of the tree, you can go to Enid and witness that on November the 26th. Nice. I, uh. So giving Chickasha a run for their money because I feel like everybody drives down to Chickasha for seeing Christmas and lights and all of that. So that's cool that other areas are doing that. Yeah, I love the holidays. I'm excited about that. This will be the first holiday that my mom, I mean, I guess she died just before Christmas last year, but we were uh, in the throes of immediate grief then. And so it did not feel like the holidays went so much. Uh, but so I uh, have a lot of mixed emotions, but overall I'm pretty happy. Like I'm looking forward to see in family and, and it being a better holiday than last year yeah, for sure. Not excited that we're just doing 
Halloween like this? Can we at least just get past Halloween? Right, right. Before we do Christmas. <laughs> I'm on I'm on board with that, but I will have you know, Bailey, there will be no waiting until Thanksgiving for me this year. I will be in the I, full... I, I, and I, listen, I've, I've given up on that fight, so... I will be in full <laughs> Christmas spirit after October the 31st. That's fair. I may do that, too. My <laughs> wife may not approve, but I think I... So we do... Uh, we'll give a quick plug for Social Greenery. They do uh, a, a live Christmas tree rental service. And I've done it for the last two or three years, and it's great. So I have someone who grew up with artificial trees, and they're fine. No, I have no qualms with that. But my problem is always, like, I don't, I don't want to just have a tree that's about to die. Ah, enter Social Greenery. They bring you a live tree in a bucket, still alive. You just water it like any other house plant. You decorate it. They bring it to your house. They pick it up from your house after the holidays, and they plant it somewhere. It doesn't ever die. It's a real tree the whole time. And it's great. And so I... Uh, scheduled my tree to be delivered like December 1st or something very as, as soon as I could. We we did that I think like a lot of people we put up uh, we put up Christmas decorations really early last year um, in the in the midst of uh, I think it was the weekend before maybe even two weekends before Thanksgiving because yeah. um, it was just Ashley and I it was going to be just us for obviously the, the duration um, and we were like you know what this is this is pretty great. Having the, has been having the Christmas stuff up uh, for more than a couple of weeks. So uh, I'm not gonna, I won't turn on Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. I'm not a monster. Right. But, you know, Chris, Christmas movies and music I think can be can be held for Thanksgiving day and after. But I think the decorations will start a little early this year. That's nice. So that's good. All right, friends. Well, uh, that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you for being here, Bailey. Good to see you. Always. Thank you, Andy. Scott, thanks for being here as well. Yeah, it was delightful. Uh, listeners, thank you for being here as well. Um, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter at Let's Fix This Okay or email us at podcast at letsfixthis.org and let us know uh, your favorite holiday traditions and when you think it's appropriate to hang lights, play music, and watch movies. Um, and also, if you have any thoughts about actual politics or sparkling water for that matter, <laughs> we'd love to hear it. Uh, and remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a good week. <laughs>